Hi, and welcome back to the Mission Minded Podcast. I'm Jim Tingler, co-host with Mitch Deans. Hey, Jim. Hey, Mitch. Hey, it's good to have your Australian accent on the podcast today. <laughs> yeah, it's good to have my accent back on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so for those that are maybe not familiar with the accent, maybe we should kick it off with the mission quote of the day. What do you think? We can do that. Okay. So this quote actually came from our guest, uh, who is Gene Johnson. Mm-hmm. We'll talk about that in a second, but uh, do you have the quote handy? I do. So this is from Oswald Chambers, who was a Scottish evangelist and teacher back in the 1800s. Um, some of you have probably heard of his devotional, uh, "The Utmost, My Utmost for His Highest. Is that mm-hmm. what it is? Right? Yep, yep. yep. That's the one. So the quote is, uh, we have to take the initiative where we are, not where we have not yet been. So I think this, yeah, this is really applicable for Gene's story and the journey that um, God has had Gene on um, from late in her high school years. Yeah. Um, so Jean, Jean's a missionary, an author, a leader of the organization, and, and that heart uh, for mission um, started at an early age uh, in her school. Yeah, late in high school. And you'll hear more about just how God brought certain people to her that um, started to change just the way that she thought about the way she lived as a Christian and her involvement in God's purposes. Yeah. Um, And yeah, God really took her her on an amazing journey Mm -hmm. from Minneapolis um, all the way to Cambodia and now back to Minneapolis still serving the Lord in pretty amazing ways. Absolutely. Yeah, some interesting times along the way, living with a large family in a small place. And Mm -hmm. yeah, cool stuff. Yeah, it's a great story. So without further ado, let's jump into it. Welcome to Mission Minded, the podcast where we explore outside the box thinking in carrying out Christ's Great Commission. On this week's episode, we are joined by Gene Johnson, author of We Are Not the Hero. Our sponsor for today's podcast is Dignity Roasters Coffee. Locally roasted and packaged by the distressed to fuel each day. Dignity Roasters was born through a passion to partner with the distressed and the desire of bringing the universally loved beverage of coffee to your hands. To order your own coffee or to learn more about Dignity Roasters, visit their website at DignityRoasters.com. Now here's our host, Jim Tingler and Mitch Deans. Hey Gene, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to talking about missions. So, Yeah, Mitch and I were just talking a little bit about um, how great it is down here in, in sunny central Florida and, you know, just, just praying for you guys that are up in uh, the, the north and, and suffering through some cold weather. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. I, I have to say I'm a bit jealous of if the weather's down there in Florida, but um, uh, Minneapolis, we just had this, like, 10-day uh, Arctic blast that never seemed like it would end. It's like 25 to 35 below zero. Oh, um, so it's uh, been a cold one, but towards the end of this week, we're going to see the temperatures start moving up. So That's good. Yeah. You know, we record these podcasts and then release them at different times. So de- not sure when somebody might be listening to this, but depending, you know, it might be middle of summer in Florida heat. So you know, a little bit of a contrast and, you know, the differences. So it goes in waves, but I can't even begin to imagine 
going out now how cold has it been there um it's been like sometimes 17 below zero 10 below zero but it feels like 25 below zero because the wind gets so cold i don't is there a difference in that or is it just get a certain point and it all feels the same um at that point it just all feels painful <laughs> makes you want to stay inside i guess uh, you just kind of run from place to place or you just it, it's all then at that point it's all convincing yourself go out take the dog out go get some groceries no maybe tomorrow <laughs> but you know what it does when summer comes when in minnesota when spring comes it's almost like i don't know it's like all these people start coming outside and it's just this kind of amazing thing that happens. So we, we really appreciate our summer, which surprisingly can be even that kind of hot. We can get up into the nineties and humid. So. Yeah. Nice. Well, Hey, we're enjoying the conversation with you today, um, both indoors and we didn't have to travel very far or face harsh, harsh, harsh weather conditions to get to where we are. So thanks Except. again for joining us. You're welcome. So we want to go into a little bit of your story today. You're a missionary author. Uh, you're the leader of an organization. And so there's a lot of um, parts of, of being involved in mission through your life. But maybe maybe we could start at the beginning. Where do you think we should start, Mitch? Yeah, I think people in ministry and missions, there's always a story um, and a journey that people have been on to get to where they are in ministry and missions. So I think from I guess at an early age, um, you felt the call into missions. Um, so what made you consider, I guess, missions at an early age? Yeah, it depends how you define early, but growing up, I would say I went to church for one reason only, and that was because my family after church would stop and get donuts on the way home. <laughs> so I literally went to church because I had to. So that doesn't mean that in church I wasn't exposed to the concept of God or his nature and, and learned some of those things. But as far as wanting to know God or relate to God or think I could relate to God was <clears throat> really not on my radar. But it's when I actually was in high school. Um, my mom started to become desperate, a um, lot of family issues, and she became desperate and started searching and different avenues. And one of those avenues was eventually to go to a Bible study, open the Bible, and learn about Jesus. And so that started to spill over into my life in high school. So just while I was beginning to discover Jesus, Emmanuel, God walking on earth, and knowing that um, I could relate to God. While I was going on that journey, that's the same time that you had all of these um, crises and wars in Southeast Asia. So you had all these refugees coming, uh, people fleeing their country, you had them fleeing, the Hmong fleeing from Laos, you had the Vietnamese fleeing from Vietnam, you had the Cambodians fleeing from Cambodia. And uh, so why I was in high school it was that time where Southeast Asian refugees started to come to the United States. Mm -hmm. And so I was in high school in Minneapolis and almost overnight, I mean, maybe there was some assembly or some information about it, but it seemed like almost overnight our school was filled with um, all of these new people from Southeast Asia, students, um, 
just there in our hallways. And, and this this was in Minneapolis. This was in Minneapolis, yes. Wow. You know, my friends they started to um, like tease them. Mm. Uh, oh, look at they have flip flops on in the winter. What do they bring to lunch? It's so you know smelly or whatever. And for me, there was something different happening inside me. Although I would, I wouldn't, didn't even know what missions was. Okay, so I couldn't identify as anything in that realm of great commission. Um, but I had a sense of no, I'm not going to tease them. They have a story to tell. There's, there's, they have a story, and I'm going to eat lunch with them. They started to uh, have my lunch with these uh, Southeast Asian refugee uh, students. Um, I started a, like on my uh, study hours, started a time of teaching them English. Um, and so I started these relationships, and um, that's when it, be, it was kind of on my radar. Like, well, I would, I would go to a Hmong home, and I would literally see where they would offer up like a chicken sacrifice based on their animistic religion. And I'm not talking about there, I'm talking about here in Minneapolis. And as a new believer, I'd go and I'd be reading my Bible and I'd be reading in Hebrews about how um, there were priests who offered animal sacrifices in its time, but then that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was the ultimate sacrifice. So I'd start the start praying and say, well, God, who tells the Hmong people who helps them understand that Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice? Mm. Or I'd go to like a Cambodian's home and see the uh, Buddhist statues and the idols set up and the incense and the offerings and then begin to read in Psalms, you know, that idols have eyes but they cannot see, they have ears but they cannot hear, mouths they cannot speak, and begin to ask sort of the same question like, well, who tells the Cambodians that God's a living God? He breathes and hears and relates and so I found very quickly that's a very dangerous question to ask God who's going to tell them because that's when I started to change inside where my your podcast is called mission minded um, that's where my mission mindedness began to stretch and be formed and shaped yeah that's awesome so God was challenging your perspective on I guess our role as Christians um, in the Great Commission uh, what did that lead to for you Kind of in a local context in Minneapolis. Um, well, yeah, um, there's two steps to that. The first one is after high school was over, I went to a, a Christian school. Um, still not, oh, so I should back up one tiny fact. So when I was in high school, my friends started to persecute me and tease me for my intentional friendships with. Um, the Cambodian Hmong Vietnamese refugees. So they started to call me nicknames like the Asian lover and just really started to persecute me. And somewhere in there in my immaturity with that and just the culture became so, I mean, I had no experience cross-culturally. So it became so overwhelming that I did sort of sever those friendships while in high school. Mm. But then I went on to Bible college. Missions, nothing to do with missions was going to get something along the degree of psychology. Um, and then one day while I was in Bible college, it dawned on me that here I am in Bible college, I get the Bible in class, I get the Bible in chapel, everything's come, you know, I'm getting fed, 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 fed spiritually. And I felt basically spiritually obese because I wasn't putting it out. I wasn't sharing with others. I wasn't, as you said, doing anything along the Great Commission. Um, and so I prayed and I said, God, 
can, is there anything I could do that I could apply myself as a college student um, around me that you see fit? And it was the very next day after I prayed that, that a, a friend, college student, came up to me and he said, Hey, Jean, how would you like to get involved in a certain ministry? And I was like, doo 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 doo, because I had just prayed that the night before. And I said, Well, what, what is it? And he said, We're pioneering um, starting a youth group made up of Southeast Asian refugees. And it was almost like God was saying, Are you ready now? And so I switched my major to missions. So I graduated with a degree in cross-cultural communications. And out of all those people groups, doesn't matter if they're neighboring countries, each one of them has their own distinct culture, speaks their own distinct language. And I felt like I could speak a little Hmong, a little Vietnamese, a little Cambodian, but I couldn't give my best to one particular group. So I chose one, and that was Cambodians. And decided that I was going to go to Cambodia when I graduated from college. But you couldn't go to Cambodia. Cambodia had a history of a post-genocide. It was a communist country. It was closed. It was impossible. <laughs> and so I had this dream, but didn't know what to do with it. And then I just felt like God sort of taught me, um, it's, missions is not about a place, it's about people. In other words, why not start with the 4,000 Cambodian refugees that live around you in Minneapolis? Um, that's the place to start. You know, the calling is starting your Jer Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the earth. So I committed to do that very thing, to get to know Cambodians and make disciples. And that led me to um, two days, a couple weeks actually, gra after graduating from college, um, found a Cambodian family of eight living in a one-bedroom upper duplex um, and asked if I could move in and live with them. Um, so that would have made that made nine of us in they literally had a bed in the kitchen that's how crowded it was and I moved into that context um, because I wanted to do missions more incarnational in the sense of finding the most um, intimate nucleus of the society where culture is housed the most deepest and move in, live and learn the language and the culture and share Christ and make disciples. So there's way more to that long story, but I'll stop, you know, give you a chance to ask questions if you want. But that was a six year journey where um, I made disciples among Cambodians in St. Paul, Minneapolis. Yeah, that's a pretty cool, pretty radical and faithful step to, to move in with a family. Um, what was that experience like for you? What did wow. God teach you in that time? A lot. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I was so young, just out of college myself. But, you know, what it taught me is it helped me identify with, with things that I probably never would have if I didn't live with Cambodians. Uh, example, what is it like to for a family who's experiencing post-traumatic syndrome hmm. um, coming through a genocide? What, what happens in a family? What happens in a family that didn't choose to move to the United States, had to move here, never wanted to in the first place, were very happy with their context, were successful to some degree in their context, and now are at the bottom of the structure of the economy and um, totally dependent on everyone else. How does this mother that I moved in with, with uh, five children and her sister and others living there where the, the father was killed, um, how does she do life? How does she learn English? How does she uh, 
still be the breadwinner of the family, uh, a rice winner, I should probably say more apropos. Um, it taught me the language. I would never, never, never have learned the language if I didn't live with the people. Um, it's just night and day. I had taken little, like, little note cards and put the words for different things in Cambodian, like window, uh, refrigerator, and pasted those all over the house. They were everywhere with the Cambodian language. And I eventually moved out and moved into an apartment building with 30 Cambodian families, kind of in very much in a, uh, yeah, it was what you can imagine, a rundown, kind of scary building. But when I'd go back to visit that Cambodian family, those postcards of all the language were still there a year later. Um, yeah, so it, 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 yeah, it was a crash of learn, hard crash, hard knocks learning of, what it's like to to be a Cambodian family to some degree um, yeah and then lived with 30 Cambodian families and that was like you no know, like we talked about cold weather in Minnesota that was like a village in and of itself people moved out into the hallways and would sit in the hallways and did life as much as they could village like in a city setting in a cold setting so I learned he heaps about Buddhism and it's like to be a refugee and what are the cultural differences made my mistake sometimes yeah that's awesome you mentioned earlier that um you wanted to go to cambodia um but just because of the political climate you weren't able to go um what led you to be able to go um i guess was god was preparing you with um, your stays with those families in in that apartment complex um what was the the leap that I guess you took to go to Cambodia? Yeah, um, so this was around 1990, 91. Um, mm-hmm. And the country, I got news that the country was sort of starting to open up to some foreigners. And I started to hear some people uh, in the missions realm trying to go there and heading there. And so it only made sense for me soon as I heard that, like, I've been waiting for a long time. So it only made sense that I would continue that that path and that journey. Mm-hmm. Um, so as soon as I heard that, I made different connections, went, uh, arranged, uh, what I want to say, an opportunity to go with a particular organization, did all the interviews, everything you would do to be sent out. And um, when I left in July, I think it was July, I arrived in July of 1992, and when I was leaving, all the Cambodians that I knew here in Minneapolis that have come to know Jesus gave me a piece of paper, and there were all these names on it. It's like a list. And I said, what are all these names? And they said, that's my uncle I haven't seen for 20 years. This is my mom who survived the killing fields. This is my cousin. This is... and." You know, you might hear in missions in the disciple-making realm things like, you know, find persons of peace. Well, I had this whole list of persons of peace in the sense that I, when I showed up in Cambodia, I already had a bridge to say, I know such and such back in Minnesota, you know. Mm -hmm. So that's what I did when I got to Cambodia. I just started working down that list. And the very first couple I met on the list is the very first couple that I had a chance to disciple and train up and they're actually a pastoral couple right now in the capital city of Phnom Penh. Mm. Um, so that was uh, my journey 
that leap towards into actually living and moving into Cambodia. And I spent 16 years there, so that was, um, yeah. Wow, that's an incredible story. Um, what, what organization did you go over with? I'm just curious. I went with the Assemblies of God. Okay. So they were they were a part of that process, and I think yeah. one one of the uh, things that that's unique about your life as well is that you've been single this whole time. Mm. Yes, that is true. I, I start out single, and I'm still single. So yeah, yeah, that's uh. So for those that are out there and listening, and might feel like this is a hindrance for me. Would you have a word of encouragement for those um, maybe wrestling with that? Yeah, I mean, from my perspective, no matter what status you're in, you could be married, married with children, married without children, single, male, female. Every one of those uh, status of life comes with pros and cons. Um, not one scenario is perfect, especially in missions. There were things I could do as being a single person, like move into the heart and soul of a family that maybe a whole family wouldn't want to do or be willing to do that, you know, or find it hard to do. Um, so being single had, had its advantages and it wasn't, it wasn't too far, too hard to go into the Bible and see that, that Paul seemed to, you know, he did it in a team, but he didn't do it with a partner. Um, so singleness has definitely had its room and space in the scriptures. And so I just encourage anybody, whatever status you're in, um, never, always look at it as well, how could this be an advantage to me and rather than as a, how can this be a disadvantage to me and there were challenges being single um, and not, not even yeah not being married in, in any cult even my own culture you know it's like people would you know kind of push me why are you single like and also but in Cambodia it was a challenge you know they they think if you have children that's important but, um, but on the other hand, I got to do things and go places that, that married couples wouldn't or couldn't go. So my advice is, if you are single, you know, you go back to that scripture where Paul was saying, uh, people who are single can really devote themselves to the Lord. The tragedy would be if you are single, but you don't do that. Amen. But rather, look at your singleness to say, wow, this is a, an opportunity to seize why I am single. And if I don't ever get married, then so be it. There is still something very beautiful and powerful about it. So I didn't really like set out to be single, but it is true that my life choices um, to go to Cambodia. I mean, I dated quite a bit seriously before I went to Cambodia, but I knew that I was supposed to go there. And um, so those choices did have some cost to it in that sense. But that's what it's, that's what missions is about, right? Count the cost. So yeah. it comes Oh, it's just like a, if you're going to be a physician, you can't say, well, I'm not going to work with blood, you know, because <laughs> being a missionary has certain costs that you can, hopefully we, we abide to those and obey, obey those. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing. And, so, and so what would be some of the things that uh, God taught you in that journey, um, living internationally? I can, one story comes to mind right now as you ask that. Tim, uh, Jim, that, um, so I, it wasn't that, I was probably in the country a few weeks, and um, I was walking along the road, and I saw, heard like metal crashing, and as I looked, I saw that somebody was on a motorcycle, 
it looked like one person maybe driving it and lost control or had an accident and skidded out and they were on the ground and their head you could tell they had a head head injury and uh, nobody moved towards the injured person because culturally there's a lot of issues there there's a lot of reasons that I won't take time to explain but some of them are legitimate um, so they didn't go towards the person and I said to myself I already knew enough being there that short of time that this is the way it's going to go. And I said to myself, oh, shoot, here's another situation where somebody could really use that kind of good Samaritan, but nobody's going to help. And I saw somebody run towards them. Um, and I thought, wow, maybe they will help. You know, And that person reached the man laying on the pavement, and he began to jump over the body back and forth, almost like playing a hopscotch game. And and then walked away. And I was like, what, what is this? What is this going on? And so I went and asked the Cambodian, could you explain to me what just happened? And they said, well, we believe that some, when you're unconscious, the soul leaves the body. And so we jump back and forth over the body to call back the, the soul. And um, it was right then and there I realized, even though I'd lived with a Cambodian family and in the midst of a family and had cross-cultural training, in a Bible college setting, as I stood there, I realized, wow, how does a Minnesota girl <laughs> land in, in the midst of a folk Buddhist culture so different from my own and make disciples of Jesus Christ? Um, so that was like the beginning of my learning journey. But God began to teach me step by step by step. And um, yeah, I think six or seven years into it, this uh so let me back up a little bit. So when I went to Cambodia, it would be called an unreached people group. I'm sure you've heard that terminology, least reached or unreached people group. And so our first wave of missionaries, myself, were like going into this unreached people group. So it was sort of like an incubator for new work. We weren't going into a field where tons of precedents was said. There were some, and a lot was destroyed during the genocide there. Um, the genocide is a whole other story in itself, really. Um, there were three million Cambodians uh, killed in Cambodia um, mm. in four-year time period. So I went into a context that was beyond my imagination of, of suffering and post-traumatic syndrome and just, wow, I can't, I mean, I could talk, you know, all, all afternoon about that. But what happened, I believe, as we missionaries went in, which tends to be the default for many cross-cultural workers, is we conceptualize and organize the church and disciple-making and ministry based on our culture, our standard of living, and our experiences. And that's how we set up missions. That's how we set up everything. How would we do this? What would church look like in America? And that's kind of how we, we ended up setting up and conceptualizing. And then seven years into that, there was a coup, um, a very bloody, violent coup. And so all the missionaries, uh, expatriates, foreigners had to be evacuated from the country. And that was seven years into a lot of difficult, hard, groundbreaking missions work. But you can imagine everybody disappeared. <laughs> and that was a wake-up call for me. 
um, it really changed the way I think about missions. Um, there's a quote that I read way after this experience, and it's some a man who did missions in Taiwan, and he wrote this statement 81 years ago. He said, the question is to whether at any point, I'm actually going to read it just because my memory isn't like that super. <laughs> um, the question as to whether work at any point of its development can still be maintained by the local people if it is left by the missionary forms the best test of soundness of our mission policies. If the answer is in the negative, then we have either planted a dead thing or planted a living thing badly. And so I started asking myself, if I cannot go back into Cambodia, everything that I planted, conceptualized and planted, will the Cambodians be able to perpetuate, sustain, and multiply those efforts without me? And the answer was yes in some cases, no in many cases. And overall missions work, I would say a lot of it would have crumbled and not be able to be sustained by the Cambodian people. So it completely changed the way I started to see missions. So when I, the country did open up in a couple of weeks, so we did end up going back. But when I went back, I prayed and I said, God, start to show me how to do missions different from this day going forward. I didn't get it all right right, right away, but God began to show me thing by thing of how to do it differently from how I was doing it. And so what? big part of my mission's uh, learning curve in Cambodia. Yeah, absolutely. And and part of that is, you know, the buildings aren't sustainable and, you know, the, I guess the, maybe the sound equipment that, it, you know, you might have been thinking of and just structurally the things that we would think of here, uh, what a normal North American church service would look like, that doesn't necessarily work being planted in another context like Cambodia. Yeah, absolutely. Um, like one of my first, like, okay, so God took me on all these aha moments and it was great. I got to learn, I got to repent, I got to, to try it differently. And like one of those was, so I planted, I mentioned that I, you know, started on the list and I led a couple to the Lord and they're pastoring a church. And um, that church I had eventually moved on from and had Cambodian local leadership there in, in, in the capital city. But occasionally I would go, of course, and visit, see how they're doing. And I went to join them for a Sunday service with no role, just to visit. And I was worshiping, and um, everybody was worshiping. And I saw a Cambodian man out of the corner of my eye in the church across the room. And he, I don't know what he was doing. Everything just looked strange about him. And so I was curious, like, what's wrong with him? What, what is he drunk? You know, what's going on? And so I kept leaning forward to try to see who he was or what he was doing or where he was from. And as I glanced more intently, I realized that he was a blind man. Hmm. And what that meant is that the way he was worshiping was the way a Cambodian would worship if you didn't teach them using foreign forms. Because he could not see, he could not copy, he could not worship in a way that that, you know, was modeled by foreigners. He was, like, unlike everybody else, his shoes were off. His, he was more prostrate. He, in, Cam, in Cambodia, you don't look people in the eye. That's disrespectful. 
So you definitely don't look a king or somebody you respect or you don't look God in the eye. His, uh, he did not make eye contact with God. Um, everything about him was humble and it looked like as if the king himself was going to walk into the room. But everybody else was worshiping the way I taught them which was an American westernized, standing up, you know, making a lot of movement, uh, lifting your eyes up to the heavens, you know, just all of those things. Um, and so that was my first aha moment. From that point, I said, going forward, I will not introduce my methods and models and ways of worship. Rather, my goal will be to teach the function of worship the praise from the Bible, through Bible stories, through Jesus' commands, and as the Cambodians discover those, rather ask the question, based on the Bible, what would worship look like for you? And so that would be one example where I started to change my mission strategy. That's just one of them, but <laughs> there were many that God began to teach me. So. Yeah, and there's uh, actually a pretty... Um great little video that you have through your organization uh, and it's called what a coup taught me about missions that summarizes a lot of, of what you're talking about so worth worth a watch yeah that that does tell the, the story in a succinct way and so explain the the gift of the elephant as well i think it fits in uh, the, the similar idea yeah, so going back to this idea, we conceptualize and organize the church based on our experiences, notion of church, standard of living. That means that we put a lot of things into that. So this picture, you have a big big box or something, and you already said it, right? You said it uh, might be something like uh, sound systems, chairs, pews. Just You can start to call out 50 things that are very costly, that are expensive, and take high maintenance. And um, so we we built these what I call boxes, uh, mission boxes. And interestingly enough, it wasn't just me as an individual. Our organization did it, and other mission organizations did it. So if you looked around at the church uh, and just looked at everything, you know, millions of dollars went into building those boxes. And um, it was the coup that made me realize how would Cambodians continue to keep that box going if, if I weren't indispensable, if I didn't make myself uh, depend, them dependent on me. So there's a Nepali proverb, and I won't probably get it word for word, but it says something along the line. If you want to take revenge on your enemy, give them, give, give them an elephant for a gift. At first they will thank you, but eventually the gift will eat up all of their resources. And I feel like that's the kind of church life that, you know, I'll just speak for myself, that I was introducing. Um, and so what I tried to do from that point on is give something light, something transferable, something reproducible. Um, and so that took really, in a way, it made me back up and do my cross-cultural work. Um, we get to countries, we have all the passion, and when you have too much passion like I had, because I couldn't wait to get to Cambodia, I had a lot of passion. That passion, um, it, it made me go too fast. And if I were to do it over, no matter, I lived with Cambodians, I spoke the language before I got to Cambodia, 
I still would have taken two years and learned and learned and done nothing, nothing mm. formal, mm. and just learned for another two years. Um, but we're driven. We want to get our newsletters out. You know, we got to get the work done. And, um, you know, any tip I would give to anybody, learning the language, learning the culture is ministry a thousand times over. And if you skip that part or if you set up church and you set up um, the, the faith in our expressions, in our culture, you will you will add a few disciples to the kingdom of God. But if you want to make some disciples who they in turn make more disciples, we've got to really go after learning and learning and then um, not bring it and teach it, but discover it and encourage it within their culture. Hmm. Well said. And so a lot of what you've taken, you know, from the field now has brought you into this next season or chapter of, of your life where you're back, you're stateside and you're working uh, for this organizations, but you also took that knowledge and, and wrote a book. And so, so tell us about the book and we'll have to talk about the cover at some point. If people haven't heard it, I love, I love the cover. Yeah. It's called, we are not the hero. A subtitle is a missionary's guide for sharing Christ, not a culture of dependency. And it's, it's not an easy read. It wasn't meant to be. Um, it was talking about elephants. It was basically written to talk about the elephant in the room. Um, and it is a lot of stories about me in Cambodia. It's about my learning curve and also bringing in other mindsets. And I wrote the book because, you know, it's interesting. The mistakes that I made in Cambodia, I can now find books that if I'd read them would have prevented me from making those mistakes. So the question is, why do we have this cycle where missionaries go, they learn what to do and not to do, they try to teach it, the next set of missionaries come, and they repeat the same mistakes, and then they try to tell others, the next set come, and they repeat the same mistakes. It's like, at least let's make new mistakes. <laughs> and um, so I think that why what I felt like I call it my reverse calling because I I did everything I can't even tell you how hard I worked to go to Cambodia to leave Cambodia like what are you talking about but I felt that God um, was calling me out of Cambodia to pass on my story and pass on principles and practices our um, tagline for five stones global is making sustainability and multiplication a rule of thumb I'm sorry, a rhythm of life and a rule of thumb for every willing missionary. And now that I've, basically what we do, we're made up of missionaries who've been out in the field already in different parts of the world. And we're trying to pass on our learning curve um, because we want those who go behind us, the next generations, to know these things before they get there. Because if you go there and do like I did, seven years of hard work, and you embed messages, you know, that your church needs to be Western or that you're too poor to do church our way, you can't undo those very easily. Hmm. Um, so if, if I, if Five Sons Global can give you a running start, a way to do missions that um, you don't pass on the elephant, 
but rather you discover principles and patterns and rhythms that will help you do it in a way where the local people um, can run with it, you know, with their heart and soul and prayer life and their giving and their sacrifices in the way that would work for their culture. Um, so the, the book is kind of my story of like what I learned and what I'm trying to pass on to others. Five Stones Global is an organization that does that. We don't send missionaries, but we come alongside others um, and just say, can we give you our learning curve? Um, can we give you what we learned and pass it on to you? And it's amazing um, how many people, when they read the book, say, if only I'd known this from the beginning. Hmm. And that's what we want to cut, cut down on is less and less people saying after eight or 10 years or 20 years, when there's that one helping hurts kind of thing, um, if only I'd known this from the beginning. Well, can we help you know some of that? Um, so when you arrive, um, you don't make the same mistakes because our, it's not that I'm calling for perfection and we are going to make mistakes, but unfortunately our deeply embedded systemic mistakes uh, cause problems in countries for, for generations. That's why we still fight colonialistic mission uh, outcomes, right, and impacts. So. so that's what Five Stones Global is all about. <laughs> and that's what I'm doing now. And if people wanted uh, to find out more information about your organization, where would they go? Go to Five, F-I-V-E, Stones, uh, Five Stones Global, all one word, no spaces, um, fivestonesglobal.org. And you can find information there. You can get the book on Amazon. You can get it online. Um, we have, yeah, we come alongside for coaching and training. And so if you're interested at all, especially if you're new and you'd like to learn in a fun way, we try to, we try to teach in very creative, very relational, very participatory ways. Um, so if any of that, like, you know, you feel hungry for that, get, get a hold of us because we would love to, to just spend time with you. Uh, come, we're come alongsiders. Uh, we don't, uh, one of my colleagues says, uh, Dan Carl, we don't make anything, we just make it way better. <laughs> so hopefully that's, uh, I think it actually comes from some uh, organization that works with engineers or something. <laughs> so I can run, don't recall it, but yeah. That's great. So tell us about this cover. Yeah, well, this cover, I actually have the book here too. Um, that's not my legs. It's not, it's not my dad's legs. It's not my brother's legs. But it, we are not the hero. Um, we just—it's a probably a really good visual representation of how uh, Americans feel about ourselves. All of us, including me, we're just trained and geared to believe in ourselves, believe that we're a country that has all the answers, that we have the solutions. And we are the developed, and we go to the undeveloped and the poor, and we go, um, it's just so part of our nature to go as heroes, and to want to go and fix, fix the poor, fix everything. And so this is cowboy boots with um, the American flag socks on, um, and it's just, we That's are not it. like yeah. yeah. For those for those that don't have the the video feed going, I mean that's it. It's a it's a guy wearing cowboy boots with the American flag socks pulled up to his knees. It's that's great. It's a good look. Mitch, Very I could see I could see Mitch wearing. Yeah, some he might socks. be. A Could assimilate more into the country. Yeah. Through those boots and socks. Yeah. <laughs> mixture. It's good. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, so great. And I know that there's more than we could possibly cover in a podcast. And I think it's a great opportunity if, if something resonated with, with a listener to reach out uh, to you. And again, just thank you so much for the time to chat with us today and the work that you're doing. Well, thank you both. And thanks for doing your mis- mission-minded podcast. Um, I hope that there's many people that, like me, just, just my, you know, my, uh, I think it was Oswald Chambers that said, take the initiative where you are, not where you're not. And so Missions Minded starts right where you are. And just maybe you step out your door and say, I'm going to own the four blocks I live around. And I'm going to get to know a widow or an orphan or somebody of a different culture. And I'm going to befriend them. And I'm going to own those four blocks. And I'm going to start being a mission-minded, mission-practical, living out life. And um, who knows where it'll take you. So thanks for the opportunity. And thank you. And thank you for joining us on this episode of the Mission Minded Podcast. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of Mission Minded. For more information on today's topic and show notes, please visit our website, itechusa.org. Mission Minded Podcast is produced by iTech. The goal of this podcast is to inspire conversations about Great Commission participation. The views, organizations, and individuals represented, interviewed, and discussed on the podcast do not necessarily represent an official position or formal partnerships with ITEC.